Well, Psalm 30 is a psalm of thanksgiving. If you look at the top of your uh, passage there, your, your title may say different things, but the idea is a psalm of thanksgiving, but is described uh, this way. Uh, your, your title for the psalm may say something like this, joy comes in the morning, right? It's an interesting title for a psalm of thanksgiving because what it's essentially saying here, joy comes in the morning, is that there is a season where uh, the writer is not joyful. There is an idea of joy, there's a promised future of joy, but there is a season, a moment, where the writer is is not joyful. And as we look at this, as we look at the, the context here, what we want to understand is that the psalmist, uh, the writer of this psalm, specifically being David, is wanting to teach us uh, how we are to be thankful and what it means to be thankful in the midst of hardship, difficult circumstances. And so as we come to the text, he kind of breaks it down into three, three sections for us. Uh, the first section is this idea of his testimony of thanksgiving. He's writing kind of here in this, in this present tense, this testimony of thanksgiving. Uh, but then he gets to a period where he's speaking to the trials that exist in his life. The trials that all of us experience. And then as he comes uh, toward the end, he, of course, circles back around and uh, reprises his idea of this testimony of thanksgiving once more. And so was essentially what, what David is teaching us here is how to make a Thanksgiving sandwich. Thanksgiving sandwich. He's got it in the beginning and he's got it in the end. But the problem is, is that meat in the middle. What do you do with that middle period? How do you get through that period? How do you move through the seasons of life where there are difficulties, hardships, and trials? How do you move through that in such a way that your life is marked not by complaining and grumbling, by worry, anxiety, or fear, but how do you move through this in such a way that you are instead thankful? As we come to the text, David opens up in this psalm of thanksgiving, and he is communicating that he is in this current state, this present state of thanksgiving. He writes, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. This idea here of being, uh, of David writing and saying, I will extol you, Lord, we, we don't, I mean, like, let's be real, we do not speak uh, in these terms. Nobody says, I extol you. Like, that's just super weird, right? We, we have no idea what that really means. Uh, you know, you might have an idea if you're reading some old school book or, you know, you happen to be very familiar with Shakespearean language. But we don't speak in these terms. The, the terms that we use nowadays are, are 
meant to be filled with meaning, but they are meant to be impactful for that moment, but they don't speak to the depth to which David writes. You know, we might say something like, oh, you're awesome, or you're amazing, or, or like you've done, but we use them so flippantly and so lightheartedly that they don't really carry the meaning here. But what David does here, when he says, I will extol you, it's rooted in a specific term of raising up, raising up. Now, for, for you and I, we don't, we don't do much raising up. We don't do much raising up either. But what David here does is he uses this, uh, this phrase that is meant to be rooted in the drawing of a, a bucket from the, a depth, from, from a well perhaps, to raise up or to exalt. And what, and what David says here is I will extol you, O Lord, I will give you praise, I will give you glory, I will give you honor, I will, I will show who you are because you have pulled me up. David is raising God up, he's exalting God, he's uh, magnifying God, making God bigger, he's declaring the name of God because, here he says, God has drawn him up. He's pulled him up out of this pit. Now, the pit that David was facing was deep. This is why he uses this language. You have drawn me up, and you've not let my foes rejoice over me. It seems here that David is communicating that there is some hardship in his life from which he is facing those who oppose him. They're described as foes who would want to rejoice over over him, who would want to exalt themselves over David. Isn't this the case a lot of times when you are going through life and and you are facing hardship, when you're facing worries, that there are some people in your life who are trying to prove a point, who are trying to make a point, who are trying to, to, to live in such a way that they can exalt themselves by pushing you down, by climbing over you. There are people in our lives who, who want to move up in life as well, but the way that they've determined to do this is to do this through uh, the destruction of others, by cutting others down. And, and it seems here that David is in this place. He knows that he's in a place of vulnerability. He knows he's in a place of, of worry. And he says, Lord, I am so thankful I will worship you. I'll respond to who you are because you have, you have raised me up. You've not let me be, be uh, just wallowing in this depth. You've not let my foes rejoice over me. This well, this depth that David is facing is really death, sickness, disease. But the rejoicing of the foes, of those that oppose David, is really the rejoicing at David's misfortune. You see, David isn't afraid of those foes, but he doesn't want them to have the opportunity to gloat. He doesn't want them to have the opportunity to say, Oh, well, you're receiving that because you deserve it. This death, 
the disease, the hardship. Of course you have that, and you deserve that. David is asking here, he's, he's rejoicing really, that, that God has not allowed them, to re, these foes, to rejoice over David's misfortune, over his hardship. And I think that this is really the question that we all have to deal with when we deal with difficulty in life. This is the, the entire uh, theme of the book of Job. If you've ever read the book of Job, this is the story. There's a guy who's in a relationship with God, who respects God, who honors God, who knows God, and wants to do right by God. And yet, though he has this deep relationship with the Lord, hardship comes upon him. And the question throughout the book that is being asked is, why? Why is this happening to him? Why is this happening? Why are these difficulties, why are these hardships happening? Why has Job lost all of his wealth? Why has he lost his family? Why is he experiencing just this great poverty? And throughout his life, throughout the book of Job, he has these people who are his friends who come alongside and say, well, Job, you know, the reason that these things are happening to you is because, you know, you were maybe uh, in sin and you were living this way and you did bad things, so bad things are going to happen to you. And again and again, you know, we can see that that's not the case with Job. Job was like so on top of it that like if his kids were having a party, he was going to go out and like make sacrifices just in case his kids did something bad. He was, he, was, he was prepared. He was ready. He was like, he had in case sacrifices lined up. So he, he, he definitely was not in the wrong. And we see through the scriptures in this interaction in Job that he was never in a place where he was deserving in the sense of karma. He was a bad person, so bad things happened to him. But a lot of times the people that we... Uh, are around, and sometimes as Christians, we're, when we're around each other, we start to see things upside down. Bad things are happening to you. Difficulties are happening to you. Well, it must because, be because you are uh, a bad person or, or because you have lived in such a way that you deserve these things. These, this is exactly what David is kind of getting at here when he's, there's these foes who are rejoicing over him. They're saying, oh, good, bad things are happening to him because he's really, you know, a horrible person. And we, uh, we want these bad things to happen to him. They're rejoicing in this. But David, he recognizes that God has drawn him up from the depths of his trouble. His death would have given an opportunity for his enemies to rejoice and to say, oh, David, of course, he deserved that. But here, what God says about David is, you will not root your identity in anything else. You will not give your life in such a way to justify it before others. You will not try to prove to them that you are right. You see, in this circumstance, David, he's dealing with sickness. He's dealing with hardship, and he can't heal himself. It's only God who can work. It's only God who can show his true character. It's God's grace that brings healing to David, not David's efforts, not David's arguments before those who are seeking to rejoice over him. It's God's work in the life of David. 
This is exactly what David confesses in verse 2. He says, O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. You see, this is an important step when you are dealing with anxieties, worries, fears, hardships, difficulties, oppression. You cry to the Lord for help. David says this, O Lord my God, I cried to you for help. He cries out for help, asking to be rescued, asking to be delivered. Friends, he doesn't say, well, you know, I thought about all the anxieties and worries and fears in my life. I thought about all the hardships. I thought about the the huge career moves that are up ahead. And I thought about uh, the things that I'm facing. And I made a pros and cons list. And then I listened to like a whole bunch of podcasts. And then I was recommended a TED Talk by somebody that I knew. And then that really kind of helped me to reevaluate my pros and cons list. And then I kind of came to the end of that. And then I met with my life coach. And then that person gave me some instruction. And then I went to my advisor. And then I kind of brought these things to my family. He, he doesn't go about any of those things. Instead, what he does is he goes to poverty of spirit and says, I'm not going to rescue myself. I'm not going to be the one who's going to save myself. It's precisely through his declaration of weakness that he becomes strong. Not because he's strong, but because God is strong. And God will be strong on his behalf. This is why he says, O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. He cries out for help. He asks for rescue. And he has been healed. Now, there's an important thing that we've glossed over here real quickly. But it's the most important thing about the entire song. What does he say? O Lord, my God. Two things I want you to see here. First, David uses the personal name of God. He calls out the name of God that is given to Moses at the burning bush. How God will be known by his people. He uses this name so as to say, you are a God that I know. I know your personal name. And by saying that personal name, you're saying, I belong to your people. Will you not be faithful to your own people, God? Will you not do what you have said you would do for your people? More than that, David presses in even further. And he says, O Lord, my God. He's not asking a higher power. He's not asking someone else's God. He's asking his God. He's speaking to God himself. What this tells us is that David has a personal relationship with God that is the thing that uh, opens the doors. It allows him to commune with God, to fellowship with God in a way that his prayers are answered. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help. You see, you can go through this entire psalm and learn what it is to be to be thankful and to move through the idea of thanksgiving. You can learn how the steps that you are to take to become bulletproof in the midst of trials and tribulations and storms. But if God is not your God, it doesn't work. 
If you are coming and saying, well, I believe that this is true, and I believe in the truths of the scriptures, and I see how God has been faithful to those people, and you're trying to come on the basis of God being faithful to other people, of other people's work, and other people's stories, and other people's relationships, it doesn't work. You have to come and approach in the same way that David did, with humility, with this confession of weakness, saying, I can't rescue myself. God, I need you to be my God. I've seen how you've worked in the lives of other people. I've seen what you've done. I've seen how you've been faithful. But now I need you to work in my life. And I don't know what it's going to be like. I don't know how you're going to do it. I certainly know uh, what it will cost me. But I need you to be my God. It only works if you are willing to make God your God. Because the God of Israel is David's God, because David knows him in this intimate way, he can cry out for help. And God has healed him. The intimacy that David has with the Lord is important. This was just illustrated to me uh, in the last several days. As many of you know, my brother decided to visit. He came in uh, to town. He doesn't ever visit. Um, he, lives, he lives kind of far away, and he doesn't do good on road trips. He's, it doesn't work out well. But he came to visit, and he's got his, his three little daughters. They're, like, awesome, super fun, great age, um, and they just want to, like, climb all over you, and it's, it's really enjoyable. But I've kind of forgot what this is like uh, to have these little tiny kids. And we're there hanging out in the house, and uh, spending time, and his kids are playing with my kids, and all of a sudden in the other room, I just hear like this ah! like crazy screaming, and I'm like, go running in there. I'm like, oh my gosh, what's happening? Like, he's got like a one-year-old, like, which one of my kids chopped off the other kid's arm or like, you know, dropped him or like some sort of thing. And my brother, like, he just totally is just like sitting there at our kitchen island. Like, he doesn't move. <laughs> this kid's like yelling, screaming. And I go sprinting in there because I'm like, oh my gosh, what's wrong? What happened? And like, it's just like his like one-year-old with two carrots over her head running through the living room, like having a good time. But I thought it was like a pain scream. It, uh, and it became apparent to me that even though there are different types of screams, even though there are different types of, uh, of cries that ring out through the house, that relationship with the father and his child has, the father knows like, no, that's like a, my kid is crazy running through your living room with carrots scream, not... Uh, injury scream. I don't know that. I, I don't get to see his kids very often, so I don't know the difference between the varying levels of their screams. But not too long after that, of course, there was a uh, another scream, and that one my brother did move for. It sounded exactly the same to me. I don't know <laughs> what the difference in these screams was. But then he went in there, and of course, the one-year-old had fallen on her face and was injured. I, I, they sound exactly the same to me. I just thought they continued on playing. 
This is something that becomes innate to the heart of the Father. He knows exactly what to do for his child based upon the cry. And here, as David communicates, I cried out to the Lord and you heard me, you healed me. The Lord has probably met his need in several different ways over his life. The Lord doesn't ever come with the same response, the same thing every time. He's tailoring his response to our needs to meet exactly what we need in that moment. This is why it's so important that the Lord is your God. That he's my God, not just in general. Because he learns our cries. He learns what we need. He knows what we need. And we know that when he provides for us, he gives us exactly what we need. It's the perfect amount, at the perfect size, at the perfect time. It's never too much. It's never too little. It's never too late. Always right. David says in verse 3, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Now David writes more descriptively. And he says, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. This is the second time that it says he has been raised. And he gets into the depths of his despair here. He knew long nights, of worry, terror, grief. He knew that he was experiencing hardship and sickness. And he says here that I was so close, so close to dying, that God re restored him. He pulled him up, his soul from Sheol. Now, Sheol is essentially a synonym for the grave, or throughout the Old Testament, it's kind of this designation of the, of the place for the dead. Uh, here And so when David says this, he's saying, like, I, I was so close to being dead that God has rescued me from that. Uh, he goes on, he says, you restored me to life. This is kind of a parallel, a parallel um, clause here in the second half of verse 3. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Uh, the pit is a synonym there for Sheol. What David is saying here is, uh, is that he was kind of closed in from every side. His foes were surrounding him. Disease. There was defeat in every direction that he looked. He could not find a way to rescue himself. And everything that was coming against him was bigger, stronger, faster than he was. He could not escape. And he looks in every direction, but can only really find hope in God. It is God who comes to rescue him, to bring healing, to restore him to life. But what David needs to understand is this. Throughout that entire period, the Lord had never left him. The Lord had never left him. He was with him the entire time, walking beside him. For those who trust in Christ for salvation, Jesus is always there, walking with you. Through the valley, his help is never far off. He's always seeking to bring life and life more abundantly, even in the midst of difficulty. 
And so David gets to the end of this kind of section where he's explained what he's thankful for. And now he gives a little bit of a response in verse 4 and 5. Here's what he says now. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. His response to see the Lord's work is thanksgiving. It's worship. His response to seeing who God is provokes a spirit of thanksgiving and worship. Friends, this is exactly what we are called to do as Christians. When we studied 1 Peter not too long ago, this is what we said. Christ has called his people out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he has made us a people that we might be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. That we are a worshiping people. This is our job. Right? This is our job. As you think about it, what it means to be a Christian, we ask that question. Most often, we arrive at this conclusion. What it means to be a Christian. Be good people. Do good things. It's kind of like, you know, have good behavior. And evangelize. Those are the things that are both true about being a Christian. But the reality is our primary objective is to be a worshiping people. We're a worshiping people is number one. Well, how do, how do we know that this is our primary cause? Well, if you look at the trajectory of all things, how things end, when we are uh, before the throne in heaven, we are fully sanctified. So our behavior is Christ-like because we are in his presence. So that will be our character, our nature, so we don't need to work on that. And then also, in his presence, there are only people who trust in Christ, and so there's no evangelism to be done. But what we do see continue in the new heavens and the new earth is worship. We continue to be a worshiping people. This is the trajectory that we stay on, living our lives in such a way for God's glory. And so here, David lines up with this. He says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you saints, and give thanks to his holy name. This is, echoes what Paul says uh, in his letter to the, to the Philippians, or excuse me, the Ephesians. He says, Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what it is to be a Christian. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he says, Addressing one another, Christian to Christian, with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So this is what he says. Our job as Christians is to address one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. So three modes presented in two ways. Singing and making melody. Worship through song through the doctrinal practice of psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And then here's what they should be filled with. Verse 20 of Ephesians 5. Giving thanks always. They're just, everything's psalms of thanksgiving. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our job as Christians. And so this is what David reflects on. 
More than that, he sees it now in perspective. He sees the perspective that he was missing all along. If you look at verse 5 of Psalm 30, he says this, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. The contrast that David makes here is, is this. He says, in hindsight, I see, in hindsight, I see that the hardship, the anxieties, the worries, the fears, they were, they were just for such a short while. They were such, they, they, were, they were so small compared to the joy that would be arriving shortly. And what he does is he, he uses this as an analogy to stand side by side with God's character. It's an interesting thing that he does here, but he does it for a specific reason. He says this, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Why does he say that? Why does he like start off with that? Like, For his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. And then he says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. What David is saying here is this. He's, he's rooting his, his next explanation in God's character. He says it's true that God can be angry. Not angry in the way that we are angry because we get angry and we sin. But God, being perfectly just can be angry against injustice. He can be angry against sin while simultaneously being perfectly loving. But what he says here is this. What causes God to be angry is our sin. And when we offend him, he is angry. When we sin against him, he is angry against that sin. But, he says... He's slow to anger, not soon provoked. And so when he's angry for this brief moment, it's upon our repentance, upon our reconciliation to him through the blood of Christ, through the mediator, that his anger is turned away and that we become in relationship with him. This is, I think, this section, in, in a more relatable way, is best uh, summed up in the idea of this hymn that we have. Uh, it's kind of more of a, a modernish hymn that we've been singing, uh, Before the Throne of God Above. There's this uh, stanza within the hymn that speaks of us being found guilty of us being accused by Satan before God and God looking upon us and seeing Christ's blood, his work that covers us. It's like this transaction that happens in the moment, in an instant, where God's character is perfectly just and he sees the sin, the ugliness of sin and then looks down upon us 
to see, do you have to pay for that sin? But then sees us instead covered by the mediating blood of Christ and pardons us. What David says here is that he knows God's character so deeply that God's favor is for a lifetime because God is committed to that mediating blood of Christ. God, of course, must be just, but his anger is brief. His favor is permanent. And David communicates this. He brings this in, uh, not just on a whim, but for a purpose. Now, what is the purpose? His own foolishness. The explanation of his own foolishness is really why he's bringing this in. That God's anger may last for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. What David is essentially doing is he's kind of just cracking the door open before he starts to tell us more. He says, like, because, like, I basically messed up. Like, this is the reason. This is the reason why, like, I'm kind of in this trouble myself. Now, what we said earlier was that God does not act with, uh, you know, or interact with us on the basis of karma. Bad things not, do not happen to bad people. Like, it doesn't work like that. God interacts with us on the basis of his son. But here, David says, I've experienced some hardship. I've experienced some difficulty in my life. If you look at verse 6, he explains more. He says, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. What David's confessing here is really his pridefulness. He's confessing that pride sprung up within him during the days where things were good and easy and life was going well, and he's like, oh, I got it all together. Like, bank account, good. Vacation days, good. Family, good. Health, good. He's like, oh, I'm on cruise control. Like, this is awesome. He's just looking around at all of his stuff. He's like, yeah, like, let's buy some stuff. Let's do some things. Like, he, he just was like, yeah, I'm living the good life. And what he says in verse 6 is this. While I was living in that state of prosperity when everything was awesome, he said, "Ah, nothing's ever going to rock me. Nothing will ever move me. When things feel easy and there are not difficult circumstances in your life, it's easy to have a careless outlook. Just be like, oh yeah, everything's fine, I'm good, everything's good. But it's a dangerous position to be in. Because you stop relying on the Lord. And you begin to rely on yourself. Much like David did. His identity shifted from being rooted in God 
to thinking he could rescue himself. He's like, I got everything. I got like enough money to pay myself out of any difficult situation. Like I'm in charge of everything. I got, like he just had everything. So he was fine. That's what he was thinking. But we read the word of the Lord in Jeremiah 22. Here's this description of the way that we often begin to live. Jeremiah twenty two twenty one. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not listen. This has been your way from your youth, that you have not obeyed my voice. This is just how things get. When things get easy, we're like, oh, I'm good. Like, thanks for rescuing me, God. Like, I'm out. Like, thanks for that. I really appreciate that. Like, super helpful. You helped me out of that. Like, I'm good now. Like, maybe you can just go, like, sit on the bench for a while. I will let you know when I need you again. Like, you know, I'm sure there's some tough times ahead. I I'm, am working on saving that money for the yacht, so I will need a little extra hand with that. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that's kind of how we begin to te- teach, God, like, treat God. Like, hey, I'm going to call upon you when I need you. It's like he's like our special helper. But this isn't the way that God allows us to be. He calls us to have identity in him. He calls us to live in such a way where we are saying, you are my God. Not you're my special helper. You're not my get out of jail free card. You're not like my uh, fire insurance. The idea of God being our God is that we put our allegiance under him. We submit to him and we recognize that everything that we have, everything that we've been given, all of our finances, all of our resources, all all of our opportunities, all of our time, the breath in our lungs, the blood in our bodies, all belong to him. He rules and reigns, sustains it. And there's nothing that we have that does not belong to him. When you live under that recognition, you're living under his lordship. This is what he's asked of these people here when he writes in Jeremiah. But he says, like, I, this is what I told you, but you don't listen. You have, this is how you've been since you've been young. You have these bad habits, and you just continued in them. And I keep trying to tell you, I keep trying to help you. But from your youth, you have not obeyed my voice. Solomon, smartest guy ever in history, wisest guy ever, just like amazing, writes this. And he, he, even he couldn't like really follow his own instructions a lot of times. Go figure. Uh, he writes this in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 32. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. You see what he's getting at here? He says, he says if you are somebody who feels like, oh, like, everything's prosperous, and like, I'm good, and you stop relying on God, if you become complacent, and you just think like, oh, like, I'm going to put God on the bench now, what it, what it ends up happening is that leads to your destruction. It leads to death. He's very clear about this, and this is exactly what feels like it's being manifested with David. 
David got in a spot where he's like, oh, prosperity, awesome. Like, I shall never be moved. And pretty soon he's like, oh, man, like, I'm like almost dead. I'm almost dead. It seems like David also speaks from experience earlier. Uh, we read in Psalm 10, His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all the generations, I shall not meet adversity. Like There's already a description of somebody who's like this, and it's like, listen to the psalmist. It's in there. It's already there. It's prepared. But David, he confesses he, he's just living in carnal pride. He was, he was living in this way, forgetting his dependence upon God, putting himself in a place where he's, you know, becoming very close to death as he describes. But he's essentially relying on his own abilities. He goes a little bit deeper and explains more in verse 7. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. David says, look, I thought I had it together. I thought I would never be moved. I was like this strong mountain. I thought I was immune from trials and troubles and tribulations. I thought I was protected from everything because I had all this money, all this resources, all this time. Seemed like there was nothing to fear. But then something happens. Overnight, it was like, boom, all of a sudden a change and he's like, and now, Lord, it seems like you've hidden your face. It seems like you've withdrawn from me. I was dismayed. See, what happened with David is that the Lord didn't withdraw from him, but David was just like running away, doing his own thing. He had drifted so far from the Lord because he was trying to find his identity in his own safety, his own security. He was trying to protect his life. That he had built up a cushion between him and the Lord. He was the one who was constantly pushing the Lord away. Really, his, his theology is wrong. God didn't hide from him. David was like on the run trying to do his own thing. But as he experienced that hardship, as he came into that season of life where things changed, it seemed like it affected him enough that he figured that he needed to change. And so we see in verse 8, massive change in his prayer life. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. All of a sudden he's got together again, like, I'm not going to rescue myself. I can't do it. The Lord can save me. The Lord can rescue me. Now he seeks the Lord. And then he comes with like this like really kind of whack argument in, in verse 9. It's, it's like he, he, he's, on, he's on the right track. But if he thought about it for a second, he'd just realize like, really? This is what you're thinking here. Verse 9. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? 
Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. So all of a sudden he's like, if I die, like, who's going to worship you? Like, what's, no one, no, they're not going to be able to, to be there and praise you if I, if I die. Like, who's going to do that? So he's kind of coming on the basis of like, oh, shoot, like, I realize what's happening. And he, his argument is, is good in the sense that he realizes now the point of his life is worship, as we discussed. He realizes that the end goal of his life is to give glory and honor to God. But sort of incorrect in that, like, he's, like, thinking nobody else is going to uh, worship him. And he makes, like, this argument, like, will the dust praise you? He's like, yeah, it will. Like, Jesus is going to come shortly and be like, the rocks are going to cry out if nobody else does. Like, all of creation is declaring the praises of the Lord. Like, pretty much, yeah. What you said is true. Yeah, the dust will praise the Lord. Uh, you know, it will declare his faithfulness. But he does come from the perspective of rightly arguing, like, I want to stay alive, not for my own purposes, but so that I might declare your praises. This is what he's asking for. He's not asking to stay alive so that he can have all his riches. He's not asking to stay alive so that he, he can have, you know, any number of things. He says, Lord, if you're going to keep me alive, if you're going to sustain me, if you are going to bring me back, this is the purpose. This is the reason for it. His identity is back in the Lord. I think as we consider this situation, as we think about these things in our lives, where we're praying and asking the Lord for things, and we're saying, like, okay, I'm going to move through this. I have a trial, a tribulation, a situation in my life that I really want to avoid, but I haven't done what David's done. Like, I'm, I'm not in the position where I'm trying to have this own prosperity in my own life, and I'm, I'm not trying to kind of live in, in such a way uh, where I'm building my life around my, my own thing. But what we are doing is we're saying, like, well, okay, well, Lord, uh, if you, like, get me out of this, or if you give me the job with, like, you know, that that extra bonus, or if you give me the vacation time, then I will do this for you. We more treat, tend to treat God as a bargaining chip. Like, I, Lord, I will do this for you if you do this for me. Quid pro quo. But David doesn't do any of that. He says, if you, if you rescue me, if you save me, the point of that rescue will be so that I can worship you. This fundamentally changes the prayer. Because David sees now only two paths. He stays alive and he worships the Lord, or he dies, but then he worships the Lord. He has a relationship with the Lord. For you and I, when we pray these things, we ought not to pray for relief from hardship, from difficulty, but we should pray for God's glory in hardship and difficulty. Sometimes that manifests itself in relief. But what we should be praying for is that we would suffer well. That we should suffer well to the glory of God. Don't aim for relief in your prayer. Aim for God's glory. And you will be in good company here with David. You can pray for relief also. It's not like, but don't make that your focus. God's glory. 
God has answered the prayer. He has done what he said he would do. We read in verse 11 now the change. 11 and 12, David finishes his Thanksgiving sandwich. He gives you the second half. Thanksgiving. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. He comes back with this praise of thanksgiving. He describes God's faithfulness. He describes God's restoration. And then he calls God's people to join in. He says, you've turned this circumstances, situation from mourning into dancing. What was a funeral, this time of mourning, of sadness, is now a time of dancing. The most joyous celebration, a wedding, this is what he's getting at. What was death is now life. What was a season for wearing sackcloth, the sign of mourning, is now a season to be clothed with gladness, this joy. And this is done, we're told, verse 12, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. See how he finishes? This is done that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. What was the glory of David? Well, wealth, riches, everything that he had. His power, his mighty men. What he is saying here is everything that I have, everything that I was thinking was my prosperity, that would not would allow me to not be moved all of that is now for your glory all those things that i thought were for me all the things that were for my glory now they sing your praise and they won't be silent they're all going to be used for you it says oh lord my god i will give thanks to you forever what he's saying here is i'm fulfilling my my vow i'm fulfilling my my request of the lord what profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? What David is saying, that you know, the, the reasons that David's saying like, that he shouldn't die, he's saying, like, look, here it is. Now I'm going to continue. Because I've been rescued, I'm going to do the things that I said I would do. He now operates with all of his strength, Praising the Lord in life rather than going down to the pit. And he does exactly what he says he would do. Giving thanks to the Lord forever. Essentially, where he's ending is this. With the same thing that he began. I can never forget what the Lord has done for me. I can never stop praising him. He's essentially restating what he has started with in verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. 
Friends, this is the same story that we have. This is what God has done for us if you are a Christian. If you've trusted in Christ for salvation, He has drawn you up out of the pit. And He's not let your enemies rejoice over you or triumph over you. Because you will still have people in your life who are telling you, you're not good enough. You don't deserve that. Who tried to deal with you on the basis of karma. You deserve that because you're a bad person. That difficulty in your life, that's, yeah, that's because, you know, uh, you, you earned that through your life choices, the way that you've lived. But the truth of the gospel says is that you live under God's grace. And we are, as Christians, giving things that we don't deserve because of how good God is. And that Jesus has taken on every bad thing that would be given to us. He willingly invited those things into his life. At the cross, paying the price for our sin, shedding his own blood so that we might have his riches, his righteousness. And so when we think about verse 1, through our lives, we have been drawn up. We don't have foes that can rejoice over us because Christ has already won the victory. Then, of course, we better come back to that opening statement. I will extol you, O Lord. We give God glory and honor and praise for who he is as we respond to what he has done for us, as we respond to his faithful character. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness, for your faithfulness to us. We pray now that you would uh, call us to live for your glory, to live under your rule and reign. We're thankful, Lord, for all that you've given us and all that you've entrusted us with. We ask, Lord, that you would um, draw us near to you, near to you. Lord, thank you for being so faithful at the cross, giving your, your blood for us, even though you didn't have to. But Lord, you demonstrated your love so faithfully. Lord, we want to say thank you and to give you glory and honor. We love you. Amen.